through a streaming subscription. You have a handful of friends who are a little bit interested, and you can half-heartedly discuss with them how badly the Patriots crushed the Giants the other week or what have you. Nonetheless, you live this from the outside looking in, like a Christmas orphan from a Charles Dickens novel squashing his nose up against the window of a toy store. But then you have a chance meeting with the star quarterback of your favorite team, a freak collision at an airport terminal, and you've been talking all of a sudden with someone you've known on TV for years. You hit it off pretty well, you become friends. And then joy of joys, when their team is going to the Super Bowl, he mails you a ticket. Seat A24, front row, not the best seat, almost in one end zone and barely able to see the other, but still, wow, quite an honor. And when you get there, it's as bright and loud and as amazing as you could have hoped for, and your team is crushing it. They were down at the end of the second quarter, but after an amazing fight back, they've brawled their way clear to what looks like an epic thrashing for the history books. And your team lines up for one more play, and they're playing towards you so that you can see your friend, the quarterback, wink at you as they set up. You hear the normal jabber of American football jargon, Blue 19, Octopus, Ford Taurus, A24 hot! He launches the ball, it spirals up, and you squint it as it rises. Time seems to slow down. Someone slaps you on the shoulder and says, Go! It's yours! Go! You look around, everyone's on their feet cheering at you. On the field, the other players slam into each other with the typical crack of muscle and high-density plastic you're used to in this sport. Your friend is waving at you from the field and pointing. You look at the jumbotron, the screen's camera is on you with the words, Seat A24, go, go, go. And with an instinct you didn't know you had, you leap out of your chair and start flailing towards the end zone where the spiral seems to be coming down. All the feelings in your gut are flipping and reversing. Suddenly the game has stopped being something you can observe and started being something that you have to do. And now you can sit here like a bump on a log as the pass hits the ground, or you can explode out of your chair and run like you've never run before and succeed or fail, embrace the amazing gift for which you have been chosen. My favorite kind of scripture is actually narrative scripture, the stories of people acting out their part in God's plan. The older, the better. The further back in the Old Testament you go, the better they are. The Gospels and the Acts are narratives as well about Jesus acting out God's plan through him, and the Acts are about the followers fumbling along in God's plan too. Most of the Old Testament is narrative as well, stories of kings and ancient tribes, and the purpose of God weaving through them, sometimes as subtle as a whispered voice, sometimes as powerful as the sun being nailed to the sky for a full day. It's fascinating to learn more about God and about the world as he operates it and about the people he works through in those thousands of years old stories. But the epistles are a different animal altogether. They are about you. You don't have the privilege of reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a detached, chin-scratching academic interest purely experiencing the writing as a mental exercise, imagining what it might have been like to have been part of the church of Ephesus. The instruction to the church at Ephesus is as vivid and real to you as it was for your Ephesian predecessors. Now, granted, they're 2,000 years gone predecessors, sure, and there's a, a little bit of deciphering to do in the book with um, the movement of time to, to do with head coverings and so forth, but don't get caught up on that. These are not stories ultimately about a certain people who lived at a certain time doing something for God in his plan. This is about you now and the way that you are commanded to live now until the end of days. 
And over the next several weeks, we'll be stepping through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This letter, as much as any part of Scripture, invites you, gentle Gentile readers, to grapple with the sheer weight of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and what he is inviting you into. And then taking that as a foundation to build on that a way to be in the world, a way to live a new life in Christ that is better, holier, more satisfying, more God-honoring because it is the way you were in fact made to live. It's an invitation to new life, a new life in Christ. And broadly, we can think of the letter overall as, as being divided into two parts. There's three chapters that are roughly about uh, doctrine, about action, um, or three chapters about doctrine, three chapters about action, roughly speaking. There's what's been done in heaven and what is to do on earth, and these naturally flow into each other. And the passage that we've read now and that we're focusing on today is like an introduction to this first section about the work of salvation, about what God has done through Jesus. This is one of those passages where translation to English can't help but lose a little of what the original language offers. See, the old Greek was much more suited to run-on sentences than English is. So all this is actually one sentence in the Greek. <laughs> so you may have to squint. Um, some commentaries say that it's, a, it's kind of a poem with a Hebrew structure, if it is. Um, it's not much like the poems that we know. There's a lot of repeated ideas, a lot of words with similar sounds to them in the Greek, which is not a lot of use to us in the English. But the point is, it's an emotive passage. Paul probably didn't sit down and think, I'm going to write something artistic. He started writing his greetings, and then he begins the letter proper with verses 3 and 4. Praise be to God and to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then he just keeps going and praising God for blessing us in the heavenly realms and follows his thought on and on. And so it's meant to be one kind of long-running thought, um, with each part leading to the other, and we should try and keep that in mind before we step through it. But before we do, let's take a, a bit of a top-down look at the passage and see if we can get some markers to know where Paul's going and what he means by this passage. Now, red might not turn up on that screen as well as I hope. I hope you can see the, color, the colors that I've changed there. Um, but if not, then fake it. Um, so predestined, purpose, plan. Right now in red, I've highlighted all the words about God's plan, what he's always planned, what, he is being, what is being revealed. These are the things that are blowing Paul's mind about what God has set from the beginning of time in the future and is drawing into being. There's quite a few of them for those who can't make out the red or for those listening on the podcast. It's a lot, and that's the point. Paul's a passionate believer. He grew up knowing the Jewish law. And he had at least amicable relationships with Gentiles. He was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus, and that flipped his world around. And suddenly, most of the Jews, the people whom he loves, hate him and abuse him. But everywhere he goes, there are Gentile believers who are willing to embrace the message of the Jewish Messiah. This idea that God had set from the beginning of time, this plan to bring both these groups together, it overjoys Paul, and it blows his mind. God sends his Messiah first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and that's another factor here. Now, no, you definitely can't see those. All right. <laughs> well, the point is, for the first, say, two-thirds of this passage, 
When Paul uses his pronouns like us and we, he seems to be talking about Christians as a whole, a blessing that God has given to everyone who is in Christ. But then towards the end, he speaks about this, this fusion of the Gentiles and the Jews. He says that God had first um, extended this to us, speaking of the Jews there, and then, um, but now also to you, speaking of the Gentiles. The, the unity of the peoples of the world is something that is also uh, in Paul's interest to highlight here for us. And one more thing, that one you can definitely see. Through this impromptu poem, Paul naturally moves from speaking about the Father, which I put there in blue, to a big passage primarily about the Son, and then finishes it off with the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is present in this passage. And you'll see as we go through the passage, well, that's exactly what he does. It's natural to speak of all elements in the Trinity when speaking of one, particularly in this poetic way. The whole threesomeness of God is nicely echoed here, interworking and interwoven, all praised together as God's plan from the foundation of the world plays out, and you, believer, are summoned to play your part in it. Now, since this is meant to be read in one long burst of Paul's joyful praise, I'm going to read it again like that, rather than break it down into phrase by phrase, where I think we might lose some of it. So just as a reiteration of what we've already heard, Let's go again. Follow along if you can squint and see that. Now, Paul's introduction starts as it normally does. Paul, as an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance to his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely, uh, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the richness of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to be put through, the first to put out our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Big sentence. Now, we don't get the Hebrew structure exactly, although the Greek word sounds, but you can still feel something of the passion in that passage, the way it all kind of runs after itself, desperate to express the power of what God's done. This is the message that's given Paul a vision for the future and a new life on earth. It gives him purpose like he's never known and a closeness to God that he never expected. Overall, though, it's actually a pretty simple message. God has always been planning to draw a people to himself. That people was always going to come through the sacrifice of the Messiah, God's son, Jesus. 
This was the plan to unite everyone under the true God. First, the Jews who were expecting the Messiah, and also the Gentiles who weren't, but nonetheless benefit from him. And the proof is that the same Holy Spirit dwells in all. This is not just a useful fact to know. It's not, um, it's not just a good reassurance that we're supposed to use to improve our lives, like a sprig of parsley garnishing the edge of a plate, adding an appearance of quality but not really necessary. It's not even the meal. It's the banquet hall. It's the thing that makes the whole eating of the meal possible and which entails a change of location and a radical elevation of our status from a bunch of scrubs eating off paper plates in our laps to people who dine with the king. That's exactly the symbolism that Christ uses in the parable of the great feast. In Matthew 22, you may remember this tale. A king is holding a feast for his son's wedding. Um, all the, the guests make excuses not to come, so he sends out his servants to bring out everyone that they can find so that the hall is filled with guests. You may remember that story. This is a total change of status for these poor street scrubs. But part of being elevated beyond their own means to royal guests, part of that includes grasping the weight of the honor that's been given to them and acting accordingly. And in case that wasn't clear, that's how the parable ends. In Matthew 22, verses 11 through 13, through 14, I should say. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what's the meaning of that in this parable? The king is incredibly generous to invite everyone in, but they are invited to a wedding, not a buffet. You don't get the free food without honoring the groom. And this gesture was not just to make sure there were no leftovers, it's to bring glory to the king's son. And that's Paul's message too. Particularly when you take these verses and you cut to the chase of what he's saying, verses 11 through 13 particularly. And you could read, in him we, the Jews, were also chosen in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. And you, the Gentiles, were also included in Christ to the praise of his glory. The purpose of those whom God draws into his kingdom is to bring glory to Jesus. And the last three chapters of Ephesians talks about how to do that in a bunch of particular situations. But now we must get at the principle of this, our Purpose is bringing glory to Christ. Now, there's a question that arises out of the reading of, well, most of Scripture, and that's this. Does man have any ultimate value? By that, I guess we mean value to God. Do you have value? Do I have value? Are actually worth anything? And there's two ways people tend to answer it, both of which are actually pretty biblical. The first one, A, is no, we have no value. God doesn't need us for anything. God does not fall in love or become compelled by emotions that he can't stop. He doesn't need help moving furniture. And though it's right for us to praise him, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we're perfectly happy enjoying each other's company before creation. We are groveling worms and the moment that you start to think that God is blessed to have you in his life, you are walking a dangerous path. 
That's choice A. Choice B says, yes, of course, we have enormous value. We're made in the image of God. We're his children. In some sense, then, we are little gods. And because it has been eternally God's plan to make us this, it must be because he thought creating people was more valuable than not creating them. So every human life is a reflection of God and infinitely valuable. And the moment that you start to think that the people you pass on the street aren't so valuable that God would die to have them, you are walking a dangerous path. And so there's a strong biblical case for both of these choices, and it's worth spending some time reflecting on where the truth lies in each of them. But for now, I think we can say that we have value when we are living the life we are made to live. The value is what God's placed in us as a potential to be what he's made us to be. Just as things have value when they are doing the thing they are meant to do. Think of a light bulb, for example. When it's tapped into a socket and it has some voltage going through it, it's amazing. It throws light into dark places. It completely changes an environment. A light bulb hooked up in a dark room is valuable. A light bulb in a surgical theater is incredibly valuable. A light bulb in the middle of the desert, far away from an electrical grid, is garbage. It can't cast light at night. It's too fragile to be an improvised weapon to fight off rattlesnakes. It's too light to be a decent paperweight if you had any use for one of them. It's not hooked into a power grid and therefore it has no purpose because it can't live up to its potential. And when a wedding guest is just eating the food but won't even put on a decent outfit to honor the son of the king, he really has no value as a wedding guest. And when someone who goes to church and claims to be a follower of Jesus lives their life going to church and claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but their life is nonetheless outside of that much the same as it would have been if they didn't, and therefore they are not reflecting his likeness in a new life of worship, that is, as we've read here, living to the praise of his glory, then they really have no value in that way. They are living a life that's not valuable, not the one they are meant to live. They are living the life they were living before and after hearing the good news, and that's a problem. Because the theme of Ephesians is our new life in Christ. And this opening passage is Paul's first best reason for turning from an old life and to begin a new one. And for the praise of the glory of the one who made it possible. This blew Paul's mind and it should blow ours. So I guess we grasp the thrust of the passage now, but... Well, how do we actually live for the praise of his glory? Paul is praising God for the fact that uh, God revealed his plan to use the blood of Jesus to wash away the sins of his people, Jew and Gentile, so that they may live, in turn, lives worshipfully and joyfully reflecting the glory of God. That's our purpose. That's clear. It's also a little bit abstract. Because no one comes to Jesus and then completely, utterly changes in every aspect of their character overnight. There's a lifelong pathway of submission. We lay down a part of our life which we've been white-knuckle gripping for however long, refusing to allow God at it. And then the Holy Spirit works in our life and turns it into something glorious. It could be a relationship, it could be an addiction, a dream, all things that we know that we can't actually master on our own, but we have to painstakingly uncurl our fingers from and release them anyway. This is what scripture calls dying to ourself daily, taking off the old man, putting on the new. It's a daily march and a conquest made by increments. So we needn't despair if we aren't perfect. 
But we're not off the hook if we are not becoming step by step more like Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we take the abstract idea that we are to live a life reflecting the glory of Christ and make it something that we can actually do? Because that's what this passage is encouraging us to do. This applies to us in exactly the way it applies to the Ephesians. So how do you do that? Well, I think simply enough, you can break it down something like this. You can take stock of the features of your life, the dreams you are, you are chasing, the relationships you're maintaining or neglecting, the habits you're convinced that you will quit next month. And then look to where you know you are falling short, where your weakness is, where you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Then you plan to do better, you decide to do better, and then you do the hard part, which is actually follow through on the thing that you said you would do. That's usually where we all fall down over and over again. But we're able to do it because the Holy Spirit, which is in all believers, loves reminding us of these things and loves giving us the strength to overcome them. And all it takes is a quiet moment and a little reflection, and he will tell you the thing that you need to work on. This works even better if you have an accountability partner, that is, someone who you meet with specifically for the purpose of them telling you what you already know but don't want to admit. But all that partner can do is reiterate what the Holy Spirit tells you. So I'm going to pause this message and I'm going to pray now. This will be your opportunity to still your heart and listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you you're supposed to do. You have nowhere else to be. You're not going anywhere until the service finishes. Seems like a good time to quiet our hearts. So bow your heads with me, quiet your heart and pray. Father God, you sent your son to pay the price for our sins. And he paid that price in his blood. You made a way for us to know you and to find that purpose which you have always intended for us. We thank you. And right now in the silence of the coming moment, Lord, each of us is opening our heart to hear what your spirit has to say. What can we start doing or stop doing or do better that better glorifies your son in our lives? We are listening, Lord. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now that thing on your heart, it's one of two things. It's either a word from the Holy Spirit saying that you need to come for the first time to know Jesus in a life-changing, earth-shaking way that you haven't previously known him, in which case, after the service, come and find me, come and talk to one of the pastors, talk to the person who you came here with. Don't leave this place without taking that step tonight. You need to know the Savior before you can be saved. Otherwise... The thing on your heart is something about your life which is not reflecting Jesus like it should. And if someone you cared about came to you with that same issue, how would you counsel them to approach it? What would you say to them to try and get them to overcome that? It might not be a simple solution, but if you're serious about following Jesus, then you have a much better shot of beating this thing if you do something tonight to move forward towards this goal, and a much better shot if you tell someone you trust and give them permission to hold you accountable. So are you that serious about following Jesus? 
serious enough to do something about it, to tell someone the thing you're doing about it, to treat the gospel not as just a story that touches your life, but as a story that redefines your life. Because before the creation of the world, God had chosen a people united from all the tribes of the world to draw into his kingdom, to live lives that glorified the Messiah that saved them. And that includes you. So don't put it off any longer. And let's pray. Father God, we praise you for what you've done. You've given us the amazing joy of being your children, Lord, to be adopted into your family, to go from beggars to royal guests, from the purposeless and valueless to to valued by the one who made the stars. Help us to live lives that worship you in our actions and in our speech, that reflect the character of your son and the things that we do and the actions of your son in, in what we say. May our lives be for the praise of his glory. And Lord, that thing that you set on our heart, may the Holy Spirit keep fresh and burning in our convictions so that we may overcome it by your strength. And so we may become a better reflector. May others see the light of your love in that reflection and come to know you for the first time. May we be now and forever attentive to your direction for our lives and always refreshed with amazement at the things you have done for us. We ask all these things through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.